All right, so last week we looked at uh, Matthew 21, verses uh, 23 through 27, where Jesus was questioned by the chief priests and the elders while he was teaching in the temple courtyard. And this was right after he cursed the fig tree and drove the money changers out of the, the, the temple. And uh, they came and they asked Jesus about his authority. And he asked them, I'll tell you if you tell me where John's authority was. And since they were afraid, on the one hand, they were afraid to lose their influence and power because they would be admitting to deliberate disobedience to God if they said that, John's authority came from God. And on the other hand, they were afraid of the people because if they denied that John was a prophet, then they were expecting that they would be taken outside and lynched. They decided to give a non-answer and say, we don't know. So Jesus refused to answer where his authority came from. So you might be wondering why I just recapped all of last week. Well... Remember how I said that the fig tree was an example. It was a parable in action of the judgment upon the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, in Jesus' day. They looked like they had fruit, just like the fig tree looked like it had fruit. It had leaves. It should have had fruit, but it didn't. The people in Jerusalem looked like they had fruit, but they didn't. They had just the external trappings of obedience. So when Jesus is challenged with the passage last week, as he normally does, he doesn't just teach the message, but then he gives a couple of parables to help people understand. The people who were there, who were listening to him, weren't just the crowds that he had been teaching in the courtyard, but now it included the chief priests and the elders. And we know if we read down a little bit further that that group also included some who were Pharisees. So he gives these two parables, starting in verse 28 and going all the way to uh, verse 41 in chapter 21. Fortunately for you, I'm not going to read all those verses. I'm going to read up to verse 32 this morning for our scripture reading, and then I'll read the second one once we get there as we go through the uh, message. So, if you would, stand with me for God's word this morning. Hear what Jesus said to the people he was teaching in the temple courtyard. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds 
and believe him. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would not just read this and point and say, how could those high priests and and elders of the people and the Pharisees not believe your word and not do as you had commanded, Father, but I pray that we would see ourselves in their attitudes and actions because each one of us has been like these people. Father, help us to grow and to change and to not be hypocrites in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So personally, I think this parable is pretty easy, and I really don't think that the chief priests had any difficulty understanding it because Jesus explains it pretty well. The, the, the parable, a man with two sons goes to, tell, goes to the first and tells him, go work in the vineyard. And he says, no thanks. I'm good. I'll pass. But then as time goes on, whatever the reason, whether it's because his, uh, his conscience bothered him or maybe he got bored doing whatever it was he was doing, he decided to go to the vineyard and do work. Father goes to the second son and he says, go to the vineyard to work. And the second son says, okay, on my way and never gets out of his chair. As the father of two sons, I can tell you, this is not a hypothetical situation at all. Okay. Which one did the will of their father? The first one, right? Even the chief priest got the answer right. The first one is the one who did the will of his father because the father said, go work in the vineyard. The first one, even though it took him a while, went and worked in the vineyard. I find it rather curious and and kind of important in understanding this that Jesus didn't say which one kept the father's will completely, perfectly without wavering. Because then it would have been neither, right? And because this is a parable, this is a, a spiritual truth alongside a story that we can all wrap our heads around, right? Which one of us has the ability to do the Father's will perfectly, completely, without wavering? Nobody does. That's not the point of what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus' point isn't about who obeys God without reservation or without failing. The question was, who does God's will at all? The first son originally sinned against his father because he said, no, I'm not going to the... Right? Now, I know most of us, most of us, when we read that, that first son, go to the vineyard and work, and the son says, no... Somewhere in our minds, there's a cringe. There's a... Right? I was talking to a, a co-worker of mine. He was talking about visiting family. They had gone to visit an uncle. And uh, this, this uncle was 100% hippie. And I mean that in the technical sense of the term. And they were all seated at the dinner table. Uncle at one end. Aunt at the other their four kids along one side of the table, and then my coworker and his brother and his parents on the other side of the table. And the uncle says to the son that's down at this end by his mom, 
do something. I forget what the, the command was. Do something. And the son's response was, no. So my coworker said his parents later told him this was their proudest moment. Because as soon as that son said that, those two boys pushed their chairs back from the table to stay out of the line of fire. Because they expected that that son was probably not going to be long for this world. Because that's what would have happened to them if they said no like that to their father. That's exactly what this son did. Dad said go work the vineyard and son says no. That makes me cringe. And my parents weren't corporal punishment like that. That makes me cringe. But then he decided to go. He eventually went. The second son, even though he said, okay, I'll go, didn't. We don't know why. Now, I'm sure you can see the parallel between the first son and the people who obey God, and then the second son who disobeyed, even though he looked like he was going to obey, and the religious hypocrites who put on a good show. That's pretty easy, right? Jesus made sure that they understood this parallel. He made sure that they knew that's what he was talking about. Because he said the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. That's a low blow. Because there were two groups of people in Israel that were pretty much considered unsavable. Not just unsaved, but unsavable. And that was tax collectors and prostitutes. They would never enter the kingdom of heaven. There was no amount of sacrifice that could be made for their sins. The tax collectors were thieves. They, they were people who had abandoned their families. They had abandoned their God. They were just, they were the worst of the worst. And prostitutes, well, we know what prostitutes do. So there was no way for them to be redeemed in the minds of the people. Jesus says they go to the kingdom of God before you do. Even though the tax collectors and the prostitutes ignored God's law to begin with, they eventually came to the point of obedience when John came out of the wilderness and said, Repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They got up and went, and they were baptized. The, the, the throng of people that came to the Jordan River included a lot of those that the people would have said can't be cleansed. But the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite, they went to the water's edge and yelled at John. <laughs> you can't command us to be baptized. We're the sons of Abraham. We got nothing to repent from. We have the law. We have Moses. We have Abraham as our father. What do we need to repent from? So which son do they line up with? Even though they looked like they were obedient, they weren't. 
whereas the tax collectors and the prostitutes came and repented and were baptized. Now, this may not be the case, I don't know, but I have to imagine here that the people that Jesus has already been talking to, because remember this whole setting, Jesus is teaching in the temple courtyard. There's a group of people that are at his feet listening to him, right? And now the chief priests have come up and they've poked him with this question, where does your authority come from? They've poked him and the people already consider Jesus to be a prophet. And of course he gives that prophet type answer, right? He says, well, I'll tell you where my authority comes from if you tell me where John's authority came from. So the people, there's already a conflict going on between these folks. And the crowd that's listening to Jesus just heard Jesus tell the chief priests and the elders of the people, the Pharisees, the religious elite, that the tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into heaven before you do. Now, if I'm part of that crowd, I am thinking, now might be a good time to leave. Because I don't know if I want to get into the middle of a fight, just like my coworker sliding his chair back from the table, right? Say, it's time to go. (laughs) We're about to have bloodshed here, right? I don't know if that happened. Matthew doesn't tell us that happened. Mark, Luke, they don't tell us that happened, but I'm just putting myself into this situation. You have a prophet sent from God confronting the religious elite in Jerusalem. Not a place where a lay person wants to be sitting. They may have thought, I need to go check and see if I left the stove on. Right? I'm I'm pretty sure I left the coffee pot running at the house. Time to go. As for the priests and the elders and the Pharisees, they may have been too shocked to say anything. Because they didn't. They're not recorded as saying anything in response to this. At this point, they're just... they're. This is the expression I see on their face. Because he just had the audacity to say that the chief priest, theoretically, to be a priest in Israel, your lineage had to come from where? Aaron, Moses' brother. Of the tribe of Levi. And Jesus just said... You're disobedient to God. They make their living doing what God has commanded. How am I disobedient to God? They they were incredulous. They could not understand what Jesus had just said. It does not make sense to them. But before they could react and before, before the people sitting around could get out of the way, get out of the line of fire, Jesus forgive the expression, but lets him have it with the other barrel of his parable shotgun, right? Because he breaks into another one in verse 33. Let me read this to you. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Look at verse 40. Sorry, 41. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Okay, that's the second parable. So, to the people gathered around, it's almost like Jesus is going out of his way to poke the bear. Because he is. (laughs) Right? They've come asking him, where's your authority? They've denied John as a prophet. So Jesus is poking about their disobedience. First, he tells the religious leaders that the prostitutes and tax collectors are going to see the kingdom of heaven because they have at the very least repented from their sins where the religious leaders have not. And now he tells this parable of the wicked tenants. It's like he's trying to tell them something. The master of the house plants a vineyard, fences it in, digs a wine press, builds a tower for protection. This is obviously not just a family vineyard. This is for production. This is for profit. This is almost like an industrial farm. Then he leases it to tenant farmers and he goes to another country. He goes someplace else. Now, we don't really do tenant farming in the United States anymore. That's just not, we've got this whole property ownership thing going on. Tenant farming is not common much. The way this would work, the tenant farmers would get to keep a small portion of the produce for themselves, a small portion of the proceeds for themselves, enough to live on, but then they would give the majority of the produce to the landowner where he would sell it, and that's how he makes his living. So the property owner sends servants to collect his produce. This is the agreed-upon condition of their living on the property. They knew it was coming. But instead of delivering the produce to the servants, they beat one, they killed one, and they stoned a third, which would have at the very least crippled him forever, if not killed him. Because stoning was typically to death. Right? And just for context, when somebody was stoned like this, it was not stones. It's not like they went out to the fence and threw rocks at him. It was rocks. Big rocks. And you would generally throw them until the person quit moving. It's possible that the one that they beat... Maybe the one that they stoned, if the one that they beat dragged him along, got back to the property owner to tell him what happened. Or maybe they just didn't show up again, so he sent the second round of servants to go look for the first and to gather his fruit. Only this time he sends more. And they were treated just as poorly. So he sends his son. He thinks, surely the son will be respected and recognized because he's going in my place. He's got my authority. Oh, they recognized him, all right. 
they recognize that he is worth the inheritance. Now, I'll be honest. I, I really like watching crime drama television when I watch television. And this is one of those questions that I would have to ask in this situation. The tenants saw the son and said, let's kill him and get his inheritance. How? how how's that going to, how are you planning on getting his inheritance unless he's carrying it with him if you kill him? But that's what they did. They, they said, we're going to kill him. Now, maybe the inheritance was the property. Maybe they thought, we kill the son, we get to keep the property. Okay? I'll, I'll go with that. So they kill the son. Now again, I got, I've got to take a little bit of, this is not in the scripture, but I have to look at the, what's going on in context. The people who were just thinking, now might be a good time for me to vacate the, the temple courtyard. Jesus tells this parable and they are looking around because this is pretty plain spoken. This is pretty easy to understand. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon to know what Jesus is talking about. All of a sudden, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to the tenants? The people that he had been teaching, if they weren't nervous before, they're probably sweating bullets now. If they had figured out what the implication was of what Jesus just said, if they knew what Jesus just said, if they understood it, they did not want to be anywhere near the conflict that was about to start. The religious leaders, if they had understood, and I'm saying if, because I'm not sure they did, would be seething with anger. Because what Jesus just told in a parable was the history of Israel. (laughs) God planted a vineyard. He called it the promised land. And he put his tenants, his people, in the promised land. And then he sent his servants to them to reap the fruit of his people living in the promised land. And his servants were the judges and the priests. And how did they treat them? (laughs) They ignored them, they beat them, they stoned them. They mistreated them. They didn't follow what they were told. Even though you look through the book of Leviticus, you look through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses told the people repeatedly that the covenant between them and God, God's part was unconditional. I will be your God and you will be my people. But there was a whole lot of if, if you keep my commandments, if you don't chase after other gods, if you don't make treaties with the people in the land, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't. The tenants didn't keep up their end of the bargain. So God sent more servants, greater in number. We call them the prophets. And what did they do to the prophets? And they, they beat them and they stoned them and they killed them. Not in pretty ways. Because the people did not want to bow to God's law. 
And then without really saying so, Jesus switches from Israel's past to Israel's present because the owner of the vineyard sent his son. Surely the son will be recognized and respected and obeyed. And the tenants look at him with greedy eyes. All they want is the inheritance without the obedience. Just like the religious leaders in Israel. They wanted the kingdom of God, but they didn't want God to be their king. They didn't want God's law. They wanted all of the recognition and external trappings that people showed the respect towards, but they didn't want to obey with their heart. And so, just like the tenants, they would kill the son in hope of stealing the inheritance. Based on context, some contextual clues here. In verse 41, where it says, They said to him in answer to his question, I would guess that it's probably the religious leaders who are answering Jesus in that question. Because their answer sounds so much like King David. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Right? So so David, in the springtime, when the kings normally go off to war, that's how the story starts, David stayed home. Bad idea. Okay? Just a bad idea. David stayed home. He went up on the roof, and he looks over to the city, and he looks down at his next-door neighbor, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And so he says, I'm the king. I can have whatever I want. Bring her to me. And so he brings Bathsheba into his bed. She conceives. Now she's pregnant. Well, what do we do now? Where's your husband? Oh, he's he's off to war with the army. All right, so we're going to send a letter. Bring him back. Special furlough. R&R. Come on back and spend a, spend a week with your wife. I'll bring the whole unit back. Uriah, go spend a, a couple of nights at home so that you'll think that the kid is yours. And he refuses. Because <laughs> he's an honorable man. He says, I can't sleep in my house when my unit's camped outside. I'm sleeping with them. Crud. Now what? I know I'm going to send the unit to the front line and I'm going to tell the commanders to press forward to the enemy and when it looks like they're going to overwhelm the enemy, pull everybody back except your eye. Leave him up front. Then he'll get killed. Then I won't have to worry about it no more. Right? Sounds great. This is the depravity of the human mind without salvation by the way. So David does just that. Uriah dies in battle, and David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And then the the prophet Nathan shows up, and I can't help but but see the scene from the VeggieTales version of this story because it's just so hilarious. You have Pa Grape as the prophet Nathan with a slight Yiddish accent, and he comes to, to the king, and he tells him the story about this little, this this shepherd who has but one baby sheep 
and he loves on this sheep and he, he, the, the sheep is a part of his family. I mean, this sheep stays in the house and eats dinner at the table with him. This sheep is the guy's life. And then out of nowhere, this rich guy who's got flocks and flocks of sheep is having a friend over and he goes to this guy who's got one sheep. Now, why do you think Nathan's telling a story involving sheep? Because David was a shepherd, right? Nathan's not an idiot, and he is God's prophet. So he's telling a story that is going to get the, the heartstrings of David moved out of the way so that God's word can hit him where it counts. So he says that the, this rich man is, is going to have a feast, so he goes to the poor man and he takes the the, the one sheep that the man loved on and it was like his child and he takes it and he slaughters it and serves it up for the feast. David is livid. He's just livid. He's tell me who this man is. I'm gonna I'm gonna find him. I'm gonna everything that he's got, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna give it to the poor man. He's going to jail, he's gonna be punished, he's he just he loses his mind. What's his name? And what does Nathan say? His name is David. That's you. That's what you just did. Right? And David is, is stabbed to the heart with his conscience. Suddenly he realizes the depth of what he's done. Well, when you look at this parable, Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, wherever, where, where therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? I can see the religious leaders answering this question with that same kind of passion in their heart that David had. Well, of course he's going to come and he's going to he's going to put those wicked tenants to their death and he's just going to he's going to take it over and he's going to give it to people that are worthy and they're just indignant at this this crime that has happened against this landowner. Jesus says, have you ever read, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus didn't answer him like Nathan did David. He asked him a question. Have you ever read? By the way, what he's quoting from there is Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23. What's the significance of Psalm 118, 22 and 23? Well, in the context of what's been going on for the last week, if you roll back to the uh, triumphal entry, when Jesus entered the city and the people were, were crying out and they were waving palm branches at him and they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the son of David, right? You know what they were quoting from? Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. Huh, how about that? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus explains this parable to the religious leaders. Now, I think he is probably that the people that were originally listening the few of them that are still there that didn't manage to escape may not be paying attention to this at all. 
They're just watching the drama that unfolds. But Jesus says, starting in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. One-two punch. First he says that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to see the kingdom of heaven before you do, which means you might still have a chance, right? If they see it first, then maybe you could pull your collective craniums out of wherever they are tucked and follow God's commands. Maybe here Jesus says the kingdom is going to be given to people who will produce its fruit. You are the tenants. Let, let me let me put it into Nathan's terms. You are the tenants. You are the ones who beat up the priests and the judges and the elders and the rulers of the people. You are the ones who beat up and stoned and killed the prophets. And every time, look at what happened to John. Every time one of God's prophets showed up on the scene and he preached a message that was contrary to your comfort, you had him executed. And now you're going to do the same with God's Son. He didn't say that part, but it's there, right? Because the, the owner sent his son and the servants killed the son. Same, same. And then he says, the one who falls on this stone, now he's talking about that cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Standing against Jesus and His mission is the epitome of futility. You're not going to stand against it. You're going to either fall on the stone and be shattered, or the stone's going to fall on you and you're going to be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about... Finally, the light bulb comes on. Ding! (laughs) Hey, wait! He's talking about us! And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is when the conspiracy to have Jesus arrested and tried, really kicked off in earnest. Up until this point, they were content just to have arguments with Jesus because they disagreed with his teaching. But here is where they started actively seeking to have him removed from the public. So I've got to ask the question, how does this apply to us? Because while this was applicable to the people in first century Jerusalem in the temple, this was applicable to the people that Jesus was speaking to directly, we have to understand that it's applicable to us too. How? 
Why is it applicable to us too? It's really not that hard to view ourselves as the chief priests and the elders of the people. We are well-established as a church. We enjoy the, the constitutional protections of the ability to worship. We, we're, we're a recognized group. We don't have persecution beaten down on us because we pretty much know how to do what we're supposed to do and, and all that sort of stuff, right? But are we obedient to what God's called us to do? Now, I'm not saying that, that we have kicked God's commands to the curb. I'm not saying that we are guilty of, of putting the prophets to death in and of ourselves. But in, in Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples. So if the Father says, Go... And our answer is, yes, I'm going to go, but we don't get up out of our chairs. Which son are we in the first parable? We're the disobedient one. While we're still here, while we're still alive, we have the opportunity to be the first son. The Father says go, and we say, no, I'd rather not. Now is the time for us to think. Now's the time for us to consider. Now's the time for us to have that, that, that honest conversation with our conscience, with our heart, with our minds, and maybe realize, no, you know what? I do need to go work the vineyard. I do need to go do what the Father's called me to do. We need to make sure that we aren't the second son. We need to be the first. The one who is obedient. Even if it's imperfect obedience. And we need to be the tenant farmers that give the fruit. to the one who owns a vineyard. Now, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Honestly, I want participation this time. Raise your hand if God has blessed you this week. <laughs> okay? All right? And, and I'm talking... I'm. Raise your hand if God has blessed you in a significant way this week. All right. So in other words, the owner of the vineyard has provided you with sustenance, a place to live, the ability to do things. What does he ask of us? Fruit. He asks us to produce fruit. 
He wants us to be fig trees that grow figs, not fig trees that grow leaves. Fig leaves are of no value unless you're out of clothes. That was a joke to see if anybody's awake. <laughs> if I buy a fig tree and all it does is produce leaves, what am I going to do with that fig tree? I'm going to dig it up and I'm going to use it for firewood because it's of no value to me. God wants us to produce figs. So my challenge for you this week, look at your life. Determine if you're still sitting in the, in, the, in the second sun seat or if you got up and moved to the first sun. And if you have or if you have not, what are you doing to produce fruit? What are you giving back to the one who's given you everything? 